WDBM East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking. Later, a look at indie filmmaking during the pandemic. But first, we're within 90 days of the November 3rd general election. How's the presidential race shaping up? Let's talk, as we do weekly, to MSU political scientist Matt Grossman about the latest developments. Matt Grossman, what did you uh, see in the last week since we've talked uh, that's new and exciting in the presidential race? <laughs> well, we had a few uh, a few congressional uh, primaries uh, this week. It was, of course, our uh, primary election as well as uh, in several other states. We had a few um, left in insurgent uh, victories. Um, and uh, so there does seem to be some remaining primary competition uh, in in both parties. We've had our seventh uh, U.S. House member uh, incumbent lose uh, in but fail to be renominated. Uh, so that that pattern seems to be continuing. Uh, let's stick with local for a moment. Uh, Lisa Slotkin, uh, of course, uh, won without opposition uh, the Democratic nomination for. The uh, 8th Congressional District seat, which uh, uh, comprises all of Ingham County and points east. Um, the Republicans have nominated a fellow named Paul Jung. Uh, I'm interested in why you think uh, Elizabeth Slotkin seems to be the odds-on favorite in a district that was Republican for so long until she came along. Well, one reason is the Republicans failed uh, to recruit a, a quality candidate. By that, we just mean somebody who had previously held uh, elected office. Um, that uh, also happened in, in quite a few other uh, districts. Um, is, that, so is that, though, a symptom? <laughs> it is. It is partially that, um, you know, that people don't expect um, to, to be uh, to be successful, um, but this is about the best circumstances. Uh, that is, uh, the first election of a new incumbent member is usually the best time to um, to go against them. So that may be a sign that they think that the, the district is moving uh, in a democratic direction. Uh, and of course, it does contain uh, a lot of educated uh, white voters that have been moving uh, toward uh, the Democrats under under Trump. So could be that even though it was a Republican district, um, it's moving uh, more in a Democratic direction. Um, but I think had the Republicans recruited a good candidate, they would have had a much better chance. Uh, the, uh, the district, of course, was considered a bellwether nationally uh, two years ago. Uh, is it a bellwether now? Is uh, Slotkin's likely, or her, her lead at least, an indication of where the presidential race is headed? Well, it's uh, rated uh, lean Democrat um, by most uh, national uh, prognosticators, um, and I think that that's that's a reasonable uh, rating. Um, and what that means is that you know if the Democrats were to lose that, that that would mean that they were um, you know not necessarily losing the the House, but um, you know the House would be threatened. Um, so. It's it's not quite in the middle um, of where the national electorate is, but it still is in the middle in terms of uh, likely control of the House. So if we were to think ahead to 
say the next uh, congressional election um, where Joe Biden might be president and the Republicans might be favored, uh, then it might move back into the national picture. Uh, we saw that Donald Trump uh, outraised uh, Joe Biden in the last reporting period uh, for uh, fundraising and fundraising. Uh, it's uh, the step in the right direction for Trump. Is it an indicator of anything? I think both um, presidential candidates will have plenty of uh, money um, with, with the marginal difference between the two not being uh, that much uh, to, to make a difference in, in voting outcomes. But I think it's important to remember that last election, Hillary Clinton had a massive uh, funding advantage over Donald Trump. And so even just being about the same uh, this this year is a big change in favor of the, the Republicans. They'll be able to compete more uh, on television in the fall uh, than they were last time. Uh, we're uh, you're listening to uh, 89FM, The Impact, here at Michigan State University, and we are talking to MSU political science professor Matt Grossman, as we do every week, about the uh, presidential uh, campaign and other races. Uh, Matt, uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the historian Alan Lichtman, who is in the news now because uh, every four years he predicts uh, who's going to win the presidential race and has done so accurately with some asterisks, uh, uh, wondering uh, what your thoughts are on his methodology. Well, it is, uh, it's fun, uh, but uh, political scientists aren't uh, very uh, enthralled uh, with it. Um, as, as you mentioned, the asterisks, he's uh, switched from uh, predicting the popular vote winner to the Electoral College vote winner uh, whenever it uh, suits, no. <laughs> suits uh, calling it success. And there's some very subjective uh, indicators in there, like whether a uh, presidential candidate is charismatic uh, that seem to be um, based mainly on uh, on polling data at the time. Um, and anytime you're predicting uh, 20 elections with uh, 13 different variables. You have uh, <laughs> you, you have uh, uh, quite a quite a bit of uh, leeway and, and difficulty making that uh, work. Um, but um, as a as a set of indicators, um, it's certainly reasonable to look at many of them, like uh, the fact that Donald Trump did not have a significant primary challenge uh, this time is good for him. Uh, the idea that the economy is uh, not doing very well is bad for him. Those those kinds of things are uh, definitely more consistent uh, with uh, what what most other uh, folks would say are important. Uh, also in the news now uh, is uh, Ohio, uh, which is having an extremely close race. Ohio is perhaps the most famous bellwether state. Uh, curious to me how two Midwestern states uh, can be so far apart right now. Uh, with Michigan uh, so strongly supporting Biden that, as you pointed out last week, Trump uh, is not advertising here right now. Well, what accounts for uh, such a difference in uh, such as the close geographical area? Well, traditionally, uh, we we have been on the um, – a little bit on the, the Democratic side, Ohio has been a little bit on the Republican side, and Pennsylvania has been more direct <laughs> representative of the national 
uh, vote. Um, last time we got uh, closer to, to Pennsylvania. Um, and I think uh, the, the main thing I think that's different in Ohio is that you have a section that is more uh, that's more Appalachian and a, a section that, that votes more like uh, Southern whites. Um, and that uh, that makes a big difference um, to, to have that representation. Uh, we haven't traditionally had it. Um, some people say uh, some parts of Michigan might might uh, vote more like that. You see some Confederate flags, but um, overall, it's made a big difference that uh, white voters in the in the Midwest have not uh, voted like white voters in the South. On uh, another subject, I'm sure some Biden supporters' uh, hearts stopped momentarily when they heard that he stepped in it. Uh, apparently. National media with the, uh, the comment I think about diversity. Uh, the, first of all, do you think there are any? Is it going to be remembered, or was that just a, a daily story? Uh, unlikely to be remembered by election day. Um, candidates usually have quite a few of these types of uh, uh, gaffes. Um, you know, before um, he's already made several <laughs> gaffes in relationship to minority voters as well that have been somewhat uh, forgotten. And of course, he's he's running against Trump, who regularly says uh, outlandish things. So it's hard to say that that'll make uh, that big of a uh, of a difference. Um, the actual issue that he w- he was talking about, um, it is it is true that that black voters vote much more uniformly for the. Democratic Party than do Hispanic voters, and one of the reasons is because of the the different um, uh, national origins of the of the Hispanic voters in in the U.S. Um, so it's not that he was completely <laughs> uh, completely wrong, but uh, another example that we're going to get these gaffes as we as we go through the campaign. Uh, a bigger concern, though, I would expect is that uh, Joe Biden is famous for gaffes. Uh, so far, how would you assess how he's doing? Maybe give him a grade on uh, his, uh, uh, his not committing gaps. <laughs> well, I think he, he's just not been all that visible, and mm. so um, that hasn't made, um, you know, just hasn't hasn't come to the top of the the news. Um, they they are. Um, they're, they're, they seem to be happy with uh, Trump being the focus, even though there is some evidence that they do need to increase uh, Biden's uh, positives um, and that Trump has some capacity to increase Biden's negatives. But just hasn't been the focus uh, so far, so I'm not sure um, how much it's, it's mattering uh, in voters' minds. All right. Well, I look forward to talking to you next week. We're now within uh, less than 90 days of uh, the campaign, so we've got maybe 12 or 13 more conversations. And the next one will be next week. Matt Grossman, thanks so much for being on City Pulse. Thank you. This is City Pulse on 89FM, The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. Threadbare Mitten Festival and Indie Film Fest coming in September and featuring pictures from Michigan directors is going digital to avoid cancellation and to keep participants safe. Skylar Ashley spoke to Threadbare's director Dan Kofiad about the fest and the state of indie filmmaking in general during the age of the coronavirus. Threadbare Mitten Festival um, going online this year. How will that work and when does it all go down? We found a um, provider uh, right here in Michigan, actually, 
there's only a handful of companies um, in the world who are able to provide a online festival services that meet um, industry standard DRM protections and offer geo-blocking for um, filmmakers. So if they have um, agreements with distributors where they have to um, only be available in certain territories and, and all of the things that you have to provide, um, there's only a few companies that can um, put on um, uh, an online festival in the way that it needs to be done securely. Um, and, and thankfully enough, one of them is right here out of Holland, Michigan. And since we've always, as a festival, had our philosophy that we want to maintain a, a local Michigan focus, uh, that was just perfect for us. So we're going to be um, using Festivy, um, and everything will be um, linked through our uh, threadbarefilmfest.com website um, to the Festivy uh, service and anyone can um, buy either an all-access pass or we're going to have um, a limited ticket available where you'll be able to uh, name your own price and then select just uh, um, I think we're going to set it up where you can pick just five programs um, for that um, and you'll be able to uh, stream those um, on demand, um, so um, over the weekend at your convenience, um, just just right at home, no crowds, um, no no death plague, um, <laughs> just the uh, the nature of of what we have to do right now. So, how did you um, curate this year's programming, um, Scott? How many selections? 80? Um, yeah. Coming so, from Michigan and coming from all around the world. How did you make these selections? So we, um, we're we exclusively taking submissions from Film Freeway, which is um, the online submission platform. It's, it's the biggest one around. Um, and then what we do, um, it's, it's the same thing we do every year. Um, we we have a, a judging panel, um, and, and I, as the festival director, um, I lead the, the judging panel. Um, we evaluate the, you know, a few hundred submissions that come in, um, and we, we just divide them um, by the, the length of the submission. So we have uh, short shorts, uh, short films, and then mid-length features and, and full-length feature films. Um, we don't divide them by genres as they, as we don't make the filmmakers sort them by genre as, as they submit them. Um, but we, we look for obviously the, the quality of the films, but then we're, we're looking for um, films that have similar qualities that we can put together into programs. We do, um, every year um, we program thematically. So every program block is going to be films that, that fit together, either films of a similar genre or films that have um, similar thematic through lines, something that ties them together 
So when you're watching one of the programs, um, you're kind of getting a unified experience. Um, uh, someone, when I was describing the process last year, someone um, said it sounds like an like you're putting together the tracks of an album. So so I'm using that description now. It's um like every every film in a program is is like another another step in in telling kind of a larger story um for that program um and the advantage of doing uh, thematic programming is as an audience member you you kind of know what you're going to get um as as a customer so when you're when you're buying your ticket or you're, you're selecting your program, you're not going to suddenly be surprised in the middle of a short film program by by something that, that just jumps out. So if you're watching a comedy program, there's not going to suddenly be a horror film that pops in the middle um, if you're not a fan of horror movies. Um, you can kind of pick something that fits your interest. Um, and, and as a consumer, you can make make that decision because we have um, a little bit of everything. We've got documentary programs, we've got comedy programs, we've got horror programs. Um, this year we even have um, like a, a program for older kids. Um, and every year is going to be different. Um, we never know what a, a given year is going to look like in, until the films come in. What kind of impact COVID-19 has had on the uh, in the film industry? Widespread. Um, productions have been shut down. Um, they've been been very slow to come back. Um, I mean, I can speak as a filmmaker as well. Um, it's it's been very difficult um, to to try and get productions going again. Um, I, I know some people have been able to. Um, and, and other people ha have had a hard time. Some productions have started up and stopped again. Um, there's there's still health concerns with it. Um, in terms of the the film festivals, um, I mean, there's across the board there was a, a widespread drop off um, in in submissions to film festivals. There was a a huge um, wave of festival cancellations and festivals moving to online platforms um, towards the um, late spring and, and early summer. Um, and there was, a, at the beginning, a lot of films um, would drop out of festivals when they would move online. Um, but I think filmmakers have, have gotten used to, and distributors of, of independent films have um, reached agreements with the film festivals to, to understand that this is a uh, temporary exceptions. Um, so at the moment we have almost all of our films um, have, have agreed to um, participate in our online festival. We have uh, a handful of films um, that, that we're still um, working with. To, to get to the online festival, but we have almost every film in agreement right now. You can track updates to Threadbare Mitten Film Festival at threadbarefilmfest.com. I'm director Dan Kofed. Thank you very much for being on City Pulse. Thanks, Tyler. That's our time for today for City Pulse.
I'm Burl Schwartz.